Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy COVID-19, we are recording our conversations remotely. So you might notice a difference in audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know yet another accomplished creative women. So meet Maria Pendolino, award-winning voiceover actor who has commercials, narration, e-learning, radio imaging, animation, and video game credits on her extensive resume. And to that end, she is the founder of Blue Wave VoiceOver, a collective of professionals who represent the diversity that is the United States and who are a voice for change in 2020 and beyond. Before moving into the voiceover arena, Maria trained in musical theater, film, TV, and drama. She's appeared on shows including Locked Up Abroad for National Geographic, Army Wives on Lifetime, and Team Toon on the Cartoon Network. So let's meet and get to know Maria Pendolino. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. When you were growing up, Maria, were you putting on plays in the barn in the backyard? <laughs> um, you know, I definitely was like that stereotypical drama club kid. Um, I was kind of hunting and looking for auditions in uh, the newspaper and I would make my parents drive me to like the community theater production auditions of Sound of Music and things like that. My sister and I, we, uh, in our in our finished basement in the house we grew up in, uh, we put on uh, fake ice skating shows. That was our, that was our big thing. So we would put on like, I, I remember like Whitney Houston from the Bodyguard soundtrack and like uh, Wilson Phillips. And we would do you know, in our socks, we would do what we thought were like really dramatic ice skating routines on the tile in the finished basement. So that was, that was the performance outlet at home. But yeah, I've been, I've been acting and performing and probably annoying the heck out of everyone around me since I was about 10 years old. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. So Broadway was not super accessible to you? No, um, we have a great theater here in Buffalo called uh, Shays Performing Arts Center. That's one of kind of the grand old theaters that were built uh, 1910, 1920 time. And we get all of the Broadway national tours that come through town. So I have a memory of my dad taking me to see national tour of a chorus line probably in the late 80s early 90s and I just remember kind of like sitting in the probably nosebleed seats in the balcony and just being completely enraptured by it my inroads to Broadway every year was the Tony Awards so I would watch the Tony Awards on on television and then would save up my babysitting money to buy the cast albums at a brick and mortar record store. And then I would also buy like the sheet music. So I had like the Phantom of the Opera sheet music, the Les Miserables sheet music, and I would like learn how to play best I can some of my favorite songs from that. So you were your own best friend in that sense, in terms of exposing you to what made you so happy. Yeah, I, uh, I, I sought it out and I just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, this is pre, this is pre YouTube, pre social media. So, you know, you only had access to what was delivered to you on TV. Or um, I remember like Les Mis did like their 10th anniversary concert at Royal Albert Hall, which played on PBS. And we had like, my family had like taped it on VHS from 
television. And then we probably made a donation to our PBS station to get the, like the four cassette set. So then we could listen to um, the cast recording that way. So yeah, you just had to kind of wait. You had to kind of wait to see what would make it to you, what would make it to your house. Do you sing? Yes. So I, uh, I started my career as a musical theater actor. That's kind of what I always wanted to do. Um, I bill myself as a character actor. Um, so I'm the person who comes in, makes you laugh. And then I go back to my dressing room and read my book while the leads are <laughs> right, doing right. all the heavy lifting. Right, right. So yeah, I, uh, I pursued that uh, through college and after college. I lived in New York City for about just about 10 years with a couple of years in Chicago in between. Um, but I performed cabaret at places like the Duplex and Don't Tell Mamas and Danny Skylight Room. I worked on readings of new musicals. And for several years, I was just on that kind of like audition circuit that exists in New York. You know, you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, you hope to get your name on the list to sing potentially 10 seconds of music for someone who's casting something that's on Broadway or a national tour, or they're doing the music man in a barn in New Hampshire for $150 a week in the summer. I was auditioning for, for all of that. And now most of the time my singing is, you know, just uh, doing character things for video games or animation or things like that. Did you make it to Broadway? I did not. I did not. I left New York in 2014, mainly due to health issues. So I, when I was 22 years old, I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. And mm. um, it's similar, similar to rheumatoid, um, but it is a degenerative autoimmune condition. Everyone's first reaction is arthritis, you're too young. And psoriatic arthritis is actually an arthritis that strikes mainly women and many times in their 20s and 30s. So I, as I was, you know, booking some of these TV and film things, and I was on the audition circuit, unfortunately, the arthritis was getting really, really bad. And uh, New York is a very hard place to live if you are not fully mobile. It's a lot of standing and walking and stairs and waiting and God forbid you end up at Lexington and the escalators are broke. Yeah. Um, yes. So yeah, I made the decision that I had to leave New York because my joints and my knees were just not having it. So um, I, did not, I did not reach the, the great white way, but um, I did, I've probably been in over like probably 50 or 60 plays and musicals over the course of my, my you know, stage acting career. And I got to work with a lot of great people and do a lot of great things. But no, we did not, we did not reach the apex. But you did do a lot of summer stock then, right? Yeah, I did a lot of regional theater, did a lot of community theater, things like that. So. I, I, I've been around the block. <laughs> well, it sounds like you did have a very rich theatrical career. Yes. And how easy was it to sashay from that into the other arenas like television or radio? Your resume is a bit eclectic, which I think is great. It just shows your versatility. But how did that come about? How did you manage to get your acting talents to go from here to there? Yeah. So for film and TV work, you know, the theater, the theater background is great. You know, acting, acting is acting at the end of the day. And I initially had no interest in pursuing any film or TV work. I was theater all the way. You know, the goal, the goal was Broadway. The goal was to be, I think at some point I stated my goal at that time was I just want to make all of my money from 
acting. I don't want to be having to work at a restaurant or temping or side job. Like to me, the goal is just to be a working actor. But what I was discovering was as a kind of character actress, I was just too young for the roles that I wanted to play. I wanted to grow up to be great character actress like Mary Testa or Elaine Stritch or, you know, all of these people who play those kind of very memorable roles. The problem is, is that, you know, at that time I was 28, 29 and I have a little bit of a baby face and I just, you know, the roles that I wanted to play were played by 45, 55-year-old women and I just had some time to kind of grow into myself. That works in community theater and summer stock. It works less in New York. They want to hire people who are age appropriate. So. I took a couple of classes just on, you know, on camera acting. Like, what does that mean? And this was also the time of the Renaissance in New York City where lots of productions were moving there. So it wasn't just Law and Order times three. You know, we were seeing a lot of productions filming in New York due to the tax credits. So I took some on-camera classes and I was able to secure an agent and they, you know, submitted me for everything, whether it was a, you know, one or two line role, you know, he went this way or, you know, meaty, you know, guest star recurring roles had the opportunity to audition for shows like Boardwalk Empire and, you know, other things that were filming there. And I was just looking at film and TV as my, at that time, my stopgap. Like, I'll just try and do some of this. I can keep it going as I grow into the musical theater performer that I want to be. And then the voiceover and commercial work actually came just when I booked the role on Army Wives, so I was a recurring character on Army Wives and I was going to appear on three episodes. And my episodes were kind of spread across a couple of weeks. And, you know, you don't know exactly when you're going to shoot until they lock it in. And you can't really take another job in the meantime. You know, you can keep working your survival job, but you can't book another acting job while you're kind of waiting to know when you have to report to set for Um, you know, a TV or film thing. So I was like, how can I make more money as an actor in between these jobs? And a friend of mine said, you know, commercials tend to like cast really quickly and move really quickly. Like, what if you look into commercials? And I didn't see myself as a commercial type. I'm a kind of larger Italian girl, plus size actress. So I didn't really think of myself as like, you know, the commercial, like, you know, selling cosmetics or beauty or whatever. I just didn't think of myself as a commercial type. So I was like, what about voiceover? You know, I, I have all of this acting training. I have all of this vocal training as a singer. I know how to use my instrument. I wonder if I could like do voiceover work. What, what would that look like? So I signed up for like a one night seminar with a voiceover casting director. It was a group of like, you know, 20 people. Everybody gets to stand up and read a piece of commercial copy for her. And she gave everyone some adjustments and after the class, I was like, man, I kind of liked this. Like it was, uh-huh. it was, it was easy. It was, it was approachable. It was easy. So I asked her, you know, if she did, you know, coaching or taught a, a more lengthy class, I ended up taking classes with her and then it was off to the races. I started auditioning for national television and radio commercials, started auditioning for animation shows. I got a voiceover agent specifically for voiceover pursuits and it was funny as that was 
as that was taking off, I was experiencing the health struggles on the side with my theatrical TV and film career where, you know, it got to the point where I was going to these auditions and I'm like, I don't know if I could actually do this job. I don't know if I could stand on set for 18 hours if I got this job. So voiceover kind of flew in initially as that kind of stopgap. And then I realized, well, this is my path to being a working actor. It's this. And I ended up kind of sunsetting everything on the theatrical side and pursuing uh, voiceover full-time. And I've been essentially a full-time voice actor since 2014. As you were talking, I wanted to share two personal things with you. Number one is I used to work for 1010 Winds Radio for many years. And a bunch of years ago, they used my voice to do a newscast at the end of Copland starring Sylvester Stallone. Mm-hmm. And so you don't hear me for very long. I am still getting residuals. Are <laughs> 42 cents, 67 cents. I happen to be flipping through the channels just as recently as this week. And I saw Copland. So I was just, you know, writing to my sons, we're rich. You know, I'm, I'm going to get another you know, 27 cents coming in. Also, I did this only once because I wasn't asked back again. I worked for Audible to record a book. I have to tell you, I don't know if you've done that. That was almost torture. Uh, Yes. You know, to sit in a booth, I didn't have to act, but it was, oh my God. I mean, hats off to all the people who do that and do that successfully. But I thought that was kind of blood money. Yeah, it's hard work. I've done I've done about 15 audiobooks and it's just it's a lot of work and I think for me it becomes a little bit of a mind game because I do other genres of voiceover where the pay structure is different. You know, when you're when your voice is used in advertising, you're compensated not just for the time you spent recording the commercial, that's your session fee, but you're also compensated for the licensing of your voice being used on the air, you know, whether that's a TV or radio commercial. Um, you're compensated for the use of time that the brand is using your voice. And in many in many cases, it means that you can't voice for other people in that category or that product. So it kind of locks you out of doing work for their competitors. So uh, you are compensated because of that. And the kind of pay structure for commercials is completely different than it is for audiobooks. And I think it's difficult to just like get your mind right that like, oh, I'm going to narrate this audiobook and I'm being compensated you know, I think I think the union minimum for audiobooks right now is like two hundred twenty-five or two hundred fifty dollars per finished hour of the book. So, you know, if that's a if that's a ten-hour book, you're getting two thousand two hundred and fifty dollars. A ten-hour audiobook, you can typically expect a ratio of three to one for recording. So, if it's ten hours finished, that's what the listener gets. It's going to take you thirty hours in the studio to record it, and that doesn't include also the editing if you're not farming that out to someone or if somebody else isn't handling that. So when you divide the number of hours that you spend in your box yeah, <laughs> by yeah. 2,250, suddenly it's not as appealing. So I, I got to the point where I enjoyed my time as an audiobook narrator and I'm really proud of the titles that I worked on and I no longer market myself as an audiobook narrator. <laughs> Just to stay on that for a second, the audiobooks that you recorded were most of them Fiction or nonfiction? I did a mix of both. Um, I did some kind of young adult and romance titles. I did some uh, kind of like how-to nonfiction books. 
I narrated my sister's book. She wrote a book called Wedding Planning for the Busy Feminist. Um, huh. And she self-published that. And I did her audiobook. So I did, I did a mix. Um, I would say if I had to say what I prefer, nonfiction is definitely easier because you don't have to keep track of all of the different characters if you've right. done you know, right. accents. Some, some audiobook narrators, you know, they, they stick more towards like the reader. So I'm, I'm reading you the story. But, you know, as audiobooks and podcasts and all things audio have become very in vogue in the last several years, there are some audiobook productions that have moved even closer to like a dramatic radio play performance, even sometimes using multiple narrators. So then, you know, you're doing, you know, more heavy, you know, accents and character work and things like that. And you need to keep a grid on the side and remember, you know, who's got the Southern accent, who sounds gruff, who's uh, higher pitched, whatever. It's a, it's a lot of work. So I would say if I had to pick, I would say nonfiction. Well, I think for me, it was mutual. They didn't ask me back and I didn't want to be asked back. <laughs> Maria, let's move over to Blue Wave voiceover. Let's ride the Blue Wave. How and why did you give birth to this? Yeah, so um, I was looking at kind of ways to diversify my voiceover business. Like you said, you know, my resume uh, of the types of voice work that I do is very eclectic. And I knew that going into 2020, political advertising was probably going to be a huge opportunity for voice actors. There are um, a lot of people running to unseat incumbents in Congress. We have the presidential election. There's a lot of ballot initiatives happening in local jurisdictions. So I thought, you know what, there's probably going to be a lot of political work this year. The different ways that I find clients, I get some clients through my agents and representatives who kind of market my voice in different media markets. I participate in some online casting sites. You know, someone posts a job and I can submit an MP3 audition and they can pick me. And then I do some direct marketing. I try to reach out to the clients that I'd like to work with. And I recognize that as a millennial sounding female Caucasian voice, when it comes to political advertising, chances are that I am the voice that a political producer or a campaign needs maybe one every eight times. Sometimes they're going to need men. Sometimes they're going to need older sounding voices. Perhaps they're, you know, trying to reach, you know, baby boomers or mature voices. So my voice is going to resonate a little too young for the right, electorate they're right. trying to reach. Okay. Uh, perhaps they want to do an ad in Spanish. So they're going to need a bilingual speaker. Uh, perhaps they're trying to reach the African-American community and they'd like to use an African-American voice. So when they look at who in the electorate they're trying to target, millennial sounding Caucasian women, you know, might only be uh, the choice sometimes for advertising. So I thought, what if I could market to the people who were producing political advertising and not just offer them my voice, but offer them the rainbow of voices that they would need? Um, cover the generations from, you know, millennial, Gen Z, youthful sounding voices, middle-aged kind of Gen X sounding voices, and baby boomer mature sounding voices. So cover the generations, cover the genders, offer them men and women, and then cover the diversity of the electorate, what America looks like and sounds like today. So people who are uh, Hispanic and bilingual, speaking both English and Spanish, African-American, Asian-American, um, covering transgender or members of the LGBTQ community. This is what the American electorate looks like. So instead of me just marketing my one voice, 
here are 20 voices that represent the American electorate and what we think you might need if you're producing political advertising. So I thought that would just be a stronger, a stronger message, a stronger offering. And I wouldn't book every job that came into the site, but through the kind of power of the collective, we'd bring more people to the site who are interested in using the voices. And then, you know, maybe one out of every eight times I would book the job. In years previous, I think it hasn't been uncommon for voice actors to voice both sides of the aisle and to feel perhaps a little purple at the end of the election season. But something has felt different in the face of American politics. And I'm really passionate about women's rights and reproductive rights, uh, pay equity. I'm passionate about, you know, sensible immigration policies and human rights. And I just find it very difficult to audition for or voice for a candidate or a campaign or a PAC or a ballot initiative that's on the conservative and red side of the fence. So I just decided to kind of put a stake in the ground and say, you know, I personally, um, in today's environment, want to advance, you know, quote unquote, blue or progressive causes that are important to me and important to my friends and family. And I wonder if there are other voice actors who are feeling the same. Um, So as I was reaching out to different people to potentially be a part of this collective of voices, I found that there were others who were feeling me that they really only wanted to voice for the blue side of the aisle. And we found out as we were doing research that there are a lot of political firms, um, communications firms, strategy firms, et cetera, who also pick a side. So um, we, are, we have been able to kind of align ourselves with that and market to that. So um, that's how we came up with the name, Blue Wave VoiceOver, bringing a, voicing a blue wave for 2020. And we're offering 20 kind of diverse professional political voiceover talents that represent the spectrum of the American electorate. Whoa. So how difficult was it to amass your clientele? So we've been kind of working our way through and trying to get our name out there. Basically, we asked anyone who was joining the collective to let any political clients know that they had worked with before that they were now part of this collective. So like, hey, when you need a voice that's not me, I'd love to introduce you to this place where you can find other voices. Um, So that was pretty successful. And my colleague Joey and I went to the Read Awards and Conference in Atlanta which is sponsored by an organization called Campaigns and Elections. And we did just a lot of boots on the ground, in-person networking at the seminars and the events and the happy hours and things like that. Uh, We got business cards printed out and stuff like that to kind of just do some old-fashioned person-to-person networking that way. And then we've just tried to do some uh, basic direct marketing strategy. So we've built a website that's uh, very SEO powered. We've written a lot of content about it. So if someone is heading to Google looking for political voiceover or democratic voiceover, hopefully, you know, as we continue to add content, we'll strike high on page one or page two of search results. Uh, We made an explainer video with all of our different voices so that people could, you know, very easily and quickly hear what it sounds like to hear those different voices that we think represent the American electorate. And then just some good old fashioned email marketing, you know, kind of seeking out the people that you think are doing the work and that think they need you and trying to write a compelling message to them saying like, hey, you know, would, would we be able to be on your list of freelancers that you use as you're producing different content? And we launched the site in January of 2019 
And I think we're almost up to 20 bookings that have come through the site, which has been really, really cool to see. So is this just very topic specific? When 2020 is over, what will happen to Blue Wave? We've been talking a little bit about that. You know, obviously we've created something very unique that we've, we're offering a one-stop shop of, um, you know, interesting and diverse voices. So, you know, is there an opportunity for us to expand the offering beyond just targeting, you know, democratic, progressive production firms and focusing on political advertising and just like reaching out to people who use voiceover in general? And that's definitely something we've been discussing. I think, you know, political advertising kind of heats up every two years. You get the midterms and then you get a presidential election. Um, And the spending has grown, especially as the number of platforms has grown. There's more and more places to place advertising and audio um, has been growing with podcast advertising and internet and streaming radio and everything like that. Using voice is, is a big part of a lot of people's strategies. So yeah, it's something that we're looking at. I think we're focused on getting our name and our product out to as many potential buyers as we can for this upcoming November 2020 election, and then looking at ways that we can continue to offer that kind of very specific political offering to that audience, but also finding ways to pivot our offering potentially to be more interesting or palatable to people who just need voiceover in general for any kind of project. Do you think that Blue Wave voiceover reinvented the wheel? I don't think that we reinvented the wheel because there's certainly there's certainly other sites out there that have collections of voice talent available. I think what we did is we just got specific, said, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, and this is what we do. And it wasn't a, it wasn't an all reaching offering. It's it's pretty narrow. So, you know, 50% or more of the political advertising that's happening is not interested in using us and uh, we are not catering to them. Um, and I think it's hard. It's hard as an actor to specifically say, there are people that I do not want to work with because we're kind of conditioned and trained along the way to say yes, because every job leads to the next job. You work with a director and you become on that director's shortlist. You know, think of people like Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino who use like the same kind of repertoire of actors like over and over again, right? Right, So we're conditioned to not say no. We're conditioned to not exclude opportunities. So I think that is one thing that's made us unique is that we picked a lane. The lane is narrow, but we're going to do the best we can in this lane and let kind of the others stay by the wayside. What has been your experience in the past when it comes to minority voices? Have they tend really to been marginalized? Absolutely. I mean, you got some of the most the most egregious examples that have come to light recently, like the uh, you know Hank Azaria voicing Apu on The Simpsons. I think it was an, a blogger of Indian descent who kind of raised it to the national conversation through social media, saying like, you know, I was made fun of as a child because of this this characterization, this impersonation, and you know, Hank Azaria kind of saying in the media, like, I had no idea, like, if I had known that this was not being received well or warmly or whatever, like, I never would have done it. So I think voiceover has been one of the areas that's been maybe even slowest in media to react to things like blackface and yellowface being not okay. I think we've almost gotten to the point 
in Hollywood that we understand that white people should not be playing Asian people and, you know, we should not rewrite a role that's meant for an African-American to, you know, cater to a white audience or something. I'm thinking of like the movie The Great Wall with Matt Damon that probably shouldn't have gotten made. But voiceover has been a little bit slower to adjust because it's faceless. You know, we we are, you know, voice chameleons. We're doing different types of, you know, character voices, impressions and accents and things like that. And you know, if you watch the documentary, um, I Know That Voice, which was produced, I think, by John DiMaggio, who's a very outstanding uh, voice actor. He was talking about some of the characters, I think, on Family Guy and things like that that they've done before. And there were white actors who did voices of Black characters and alongside other Black voice actors. And I feel like we've gotten to a point where, like, that is no longer okay. It took forever to get to that place. Absolutely. It, it took a really long time. Ten years ago, nobody would have blinked an eye, I think, at uh, a person who is not of color doing a voice or impression of someone who is. You know, now we're seeing in casting notices, you know, very specifically, like if, if the person on screen in a commercial is a person of color and the voiceover is their interior monologue or something now on the voiceover casting it's stating you know looking for performers of color looking specifically for african-american voices and i think it's great i think it should be like that and i think there should be opportunities that are clearly indicated for uh performers of color and minority voices and um even if it is faceless it's still that authenticity is still important and representation is important and the opportunities are important are you surprised that there was no Blue Wave voiceover before you came along? I don't know if I was surprised. I just, I think it's, sometimes it's hard to just put, it's hard to put your politics out there sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, putting some things on, you know, Facebook or Twitter sometimes feels like it's just screaming into the void. Also, sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a place for politics in your business. So um, for me, this was just a way to say, I, I have a voice. My voice is used in commerce, whether that is selling a product or selling an idea. And I would just like to have a little bit more control over where my voice is being used and what comments I'm advancing, what ballots I'm advancing, ballot initiatives, what candidates I'm advancing. Um, and it's not, it's not about necessarily, you know, denigrating the other side. It's not that. It's about lifting up the things that I actually care about. So were you always an activist? I don't know. I I have a memory of like walking around picking up trash in the neighborhood and telling my mom that we had to save the world and being kind of very intentional about making sure that we were using our recycling bin when recycling bins first became a thing. I have been picking up trash since I cannot remember when. So we're soul sisters. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much it made a difference, but uh picking up litter, I've I've always felt uh strongly about that. I think there's definitely been a part of me that has been very, very vocal about women's rights. I've just always hated knowing that things are different for women in the world, whether that is a gender pay gap or expectations of, you know, emotional labor in the household should fall to the woman. I'll give you a funny example. My husband and I decided to do a prenup. We got, I was 30 five when we got married. Um, And I had built up a business and retirement accounts and all of these things. And 
uh, we were not particularly equivalent from a financial perspective when we came into our marriage. And most of all, I just wanted to protect my business. So if for some reason our marriage were to fall apart, I wouldn't want to have to give half of my my voiceover business, especially knowing that it's me, right? you right. know, give half of my voiceover business to my husband. And he was fine. He was just like, that makes sense. It's fine. So I hired a lawyer and she sent me the first draft of the prenup and all of the pronouns were wrong. So it said, Maria Pendolino, he, and mm-hmm. my husband, Eric, she, because the default in the software is always that it's a man protecting his assets from a woman. Right. And it's little things like that, you know, and, you know, we didn't have like a knockdown drag out, you know, fight or conversation about this with my lawyer. I was just like, hey, the pronouns are wrong. I'm a she. And like, it's just little things like that. It's, it's institutionalized. It's systemic. So I think I've always felt very passionate about, you know, making changes that advocate women, um, you know, feminism, equality, choice, all of those things are really important to me. But I'm not, in my nature, like I'm not a marcher. I'm not out there protesting. That kind of isn't my jam. I I like to give money to causes that I believe in. I have, I think I'm up to five charities now that I do a, a monthly donation that's just kind of set up and automatic. And they range from environmental, human rights, animal rescue, and women's rights, Planned Parenthood. So I like to put my money where my mouth is. I think that's where I uh, feel strongly about advancing the causes I care about. And it's great to be able to marry your personal with your professional, with your political lives. Oftentimes we can't do that, you know. So you basically work from home. Yes, I do. A hundred percent of the time. And so that means you have a studio. I do, yes. Uh, I built a voiceover recording studio in my home. Um, I have an awesome Studio Bricks booth. It's a modular uh, booth that's produced in Spain. Um, It kind of goes together like gigantic Legos. And basically, I have one room in our home that's dedicated to my business. So I have my booth with all of my recording equipment in there. And then I have a desk that's kind of like my editing suite with my computer and everything like that. And uh, I just kind of sit in there all day and it's a five-step commute from the kitchen, <laughs> a three, three-step commute to the bathroom. When somebody hires you, for them, it's one-stop shopping, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have invested in a couple of different connection technologies that allow recording studios and engineers to basically kind of remote into my system and it allows them to record from my microphone right onto their board so they can you know, record and edit in real time, put things to picture, just as if I was standing in their studio, in their booth. So I've invested, you know, the money and system requirements so that they're able to do that. And then I have a lot of clients that they don't do any sort of recording and editing on their end. So they hire me, we might do a session together where they can give feedback. And then I'm actually recording, editing and delivering the finished audio to them that's kind of ready to drop and go. Is that unique among voiceover artists? So I think there's two kind of two types of voiceover actors. There are the people who uh, are accustomed to kind of getting the job assignment from their agent and then they report to the studio that they're supposed to report to and they're the talent and they do the job and then they go home. And then there's kind of this whole community of, I would say, working class voice actors that have taken the time to you know, build a studio, get up to speed on some of the technical requirements and, 
they might be a hybrid where they do some jobs in studio, do some jobs at home. And then there's people like me who are almost 100% at home. Um, I do have a couple of relationships with uh, the recording studios that are here in Buffalo. And if they ask me to come into the studio because they're going to have clients there in you know non-COVID-19 times, I'm always happy to do that and take a drive. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate in today's current environment that my ability to do my job has not been affected. Of course, things have changed with, you know, who needs voiceover and, you know, things that are happening with small businesses and corporations making decisions about what types of marketing they want to do or other types of industrial content. You know, that is shifting and changing as the pandemic, um, you know, continues here. But my ability to actually go to work was not at all affected. I'm working in the same space that I would day in and day out. Well, that's great. What do you see down the road for you? Oh, that's a good question. I think I'll continue to, you know, pursue voiceover at the, you know, highest echelons that are available to me. Being able to submit for, you know, top tier national commercial campaigns, be the voice of, you know, a brand over a multi-year contract, be submitting for, you know, animated shows and top tier video games and things like that. And I do think that, you know, with the with what's happened with COVID-19, I think some um, hiring folks have realized that there are talents out there in the world that have these fully equipped setups. And it's not just a voice actor with a microphone under a blanket. <laughs> that's, that's one version of a home studio, but that actually have a full booth, have the ability to, um, you know, produce broadcast quality audio, have the ability to, you know, handle a three to four hour directed session without interruption, things like that. I do think it may open up opportunities that perhaps were only limited to voice actors that were physically in New York or physically in Los Angeles and able to, you know, report to a studio. I think there's some things that will probably go back to the way they were, but perhaps there'll be more appetite for that. Also, just as, you know, more Gen Z and millennials enter the workforce and are taking on leadership positions and, you know, older Gen X and baby boomers are retiring, I think there's more appetite for adaptation and this idea of being a digital nomad. And it doesn't matter where you are, as long as you're getting the work done, as long as you're able to do the job, they don't care where you're doing it or what time you're doing it. You know, there's just more, there's more appetite for some flexibility. So I'm looking forward to kind of riding that wave as it comes. And eventually, I think, you know, I don't know, maybe buy a lake house and put a booth in there and then I can have two different places that I can do some work. I often ask this question of my guests. If I was your fairy godmother, what would you want from me? What would you ask me? Oh, wow. That's a great question. (laughs) Mm. Uh, If I could ask you for one thing, it would be to be the singing voice and character voice of a Disney villain. That has always been my dream. Um, I think a lot of girls grew up loving Ariel and I grew up loving Ursula. (laughs) Uh Uh So yeah, if I could ask you for one thing, it would be to cast me as a singing Disney villain. How often have you used your singing voice in your professional work? Um, Here and there. Um, I audition for jingles every once in a while. I audition for animated shows that have a singing component, promos that, might have singing. So maybe a couple times a month, um, but it's, it's definitely not the primary thing that I do day in and day out. So it sounds to me as we talk about your life and as, as you look over your career and where you are, you've been able to have your fingers in a lot of pies. And I think that that's kind of a neat thing. 
Yeah, I think I've never I've never been precious with my acting career. I've never thought of myself as a capital A actor and you know thinking some things are, you know, above or below me, you know, whatever whatever that might mean. I've enjoyed just trying a lot of different things and you know like we were talking about audiobooks before, I've also enjoyed one of the greatest secrets of adulthood and that is learning how to say no. And <laughs> when you realize that you don't like doing something or something doesn't line up with where you want to be or what you want to do, that you do have the power to say no. Now, saying no may have ramifications, be it financial or otherwise, but you do have that autonomy to do it. But yeah, I've I've really enjoyed being able to, you know, work across different genres, whether it's you know, doing a super happy, funny, bubbly commercial. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I narrated a, you know, training presentation for people who are working on construction sites. Um, I find that very gratifying, helping people be able to do their job safely. I've done a couple of the kind of COVID-19 style commercials that, you know, kind of have that warm, caring tone and the, you know, now more than ever and in these uncertain times. So, you know, it's been, it's been nice to be a part of, you know, the, messaging that's helping to, you know, reassure Americans that we're, we are going to get through this. So yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed being, I've really enjoyed having a very diverse career. I've been hired to do a voice of a character in an independent video game. And the uh, producer is in Germany. And uh, he described the character as Coraline meets Daria. So she's kind of young and youthful and inquisitive, but she's also very sassy and very sarcastic. And that really, really spoke to me. And we've worked on some of the prototypes for the game. And this year it got nominated for Best Prototype in the German Computer Game Awards. Very nice. So it was so cool to know that kind of my interpretation of his drawing and his character description, you know, led to, you know, a very successful prototype of the game. So that's, that's something that I feel really great hanging my hat on. You have a pretty freaking good life. It's not bad. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very happy doing what I do. I'm very grateful to be successful at what I do. And I think it's great to wake up every day and actually really enjoy what you do. And I think it's really wonderful that you're able to ride the blue wave. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to see what happens this year. It's going to be very, very interesting. Yeah, that's putting it diplomatically. Um, (laughs) Maria, it was really great to meet you and learn all about you remotely. And I wish you continued success in your life and your career. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. This was great. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.